Well, last week I told you that I was very tempted to entitle my talk last week, How to Work for a Jake. This week I'm even more tempted to entitle my sermon, How to Live with One. Because um, that's really the thrust of this passage. How to live with one. Um, as we've said, I've given a little bit of intro already. Uh, we're in 1 Peter. We're coming to this very um, interesting and profound passage in chapter 3 here. It's great to be going through the Bible consecutively so we don't miss out passages like this. Um, we have been getting increasingly personal and we're coming now to think about authority in the whole. Uh, I think this can be a real problem, this passage, for, for people for all sorts of reasons. I want to give you three. I think, first of all, it is very clear in our modern world that we have made lots and lots of very positive gains in the area of equality and the treatment of women. We'll talk about this a little bit more later, but in past cultures, women have been treated very badly on occasions. And I think some people can come to this passage and think, wow, what a backward step this is. We've made all these gains, and then we come back to the Bible, this old-fashioned book, and it wants us to go back into the dark ages where women are like slaves. And uh, I think this passage can cause people a problem because of that kind of issue. There are um, feminists, both outside and sadly inside the church, who will struggle with this part of the Bible because it sounds like a draconian return to something that is very harsh. Um, I was sharing with somebody during the week that I came across a cartoon during the week of a preacher who was in a military bunker with just his face showing and, uh, and he's in church about to preach and underneath there's a little text hanging there 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 1 wives submit to your husband and he was basically getting ready for the kind of bullets to be fired at him and I think uh, maybe, maybe it's a good thing that my sermon notes went walkies last night I don't know we'll, uh, we'll see as we go through it there are some Bible scholars and commentators that will tell you that this verse doesn't really mean what it seems to mean and they'll talk to you about trying to understand first century culture and this is a cultural thing and it doesn't really apply now in an attempt to dilute what Peter says here I think it is something we can be thankful to God for that this is not just like out of the blue but this is part of a chapter that is dealing with the whole subject of authority in worst case scenarios bad government, bad employers unbelieving husbands and Peter says unmistakably I want you to submit because of your faith in Jesus and if it's true in that worst case scenario it is surely true for other better scenarios as we've seen as we've gone through this chapter but that's, that's the first reason why it might be difficult for some people that it sounds like a backward step I think secondly there's a real need to be sensitive here uh, I think lots of people struggle with this because it's a sensitive subject as well um, I'm very full of joy really that our church is such a mixed church isn't it fantastic there's a few of us here but we have all ages and all kinds of different people even international flavour to our church and that's a good thing but what that means is in a mixed audience there will be undoubtedly people even here today among you 
who struggle with some of these subjects. Uh, some of you have struggled with singleness. Some of you have been married and lost loved ones and, st- and struggled with bereavement. Some of you maybe are yet to be married and are wondering what that will entail. I think some people have been in difficult relationships and have very painful memories of abusive, controlling relationships. And what does this passage say uh, to people who are in that condition this morning? I think um, I just want to say that I want to try and deal with it very sensitively. I I recognise that this is very hard for some people. And um, if this raises issues for you today, I want to encourage you to talk and not to hide away from those issues if they're important for you. I think the third reason why this can be difficult for people is not because it makes them bristle or because it's a sensitive subject, but the third reason that this can make women in particular bristle, it's linked to the second point really, is, is, is really the way that men behave. And the recurring idea here, as we said, it's inescapable here that Peter's talking about worst case scenarios. He's not saying, submit your husband if he's great. He's talking here about unbelieving, potentially harsh husbands. And he's speaking very directly into that situation. I think it's tempting for women to say, have you met my husband? Do you know what he's like at home? nicest pie to you but when that door closes and you've gone he is really horrible there's no way this verse applies to me surely if you met my husband you would let me off from this and that can cause women to bristle too I don't trust men they'll never change and I've got to say to you this morning if you're a woman or a wife I have some sympathy with that view and it's important for me to say that I um think a lot of men have very poor views of what it means to be a man and um, I, I came I was listening to one sermon and the guy said um, some men think that being a man is all about shouting the loudest punching the hardest drinking the most burping the loudest smelling the worst and uh, there are, there's a, a few women here this morning. I'm pretty sure that none of you have gone into your room and knelt down and said, Oh Lord, send me a man like that. <laughs> that isn't really what women want or need. And it's funny, isn't it? The differences between men and women, what men perceive masculinity to be, is very often the opposite of what women need and what God intends for men to be. So I think if you're here and you're thinking this can't apply to me because you've never met my husband I've met most of your husbands and I know some of them are difficult and uh, and I hope they come next week and listen to what I want to say to men because uh, they need to learn things and I need to learn things but uh, I just want to mark that that there's a lot of sympathy here with that it would be far easier for you women to be women if men really behaved like men should and, uh, and it's sad that we live in a broken, fallen world where both men and women can fail to be what God wants them to be. But the, the, it, it's not appropriate for either side to say, I'll be what I'm going to be when my partner is what they should be. Peter wants us to focus on us 
and not focus on changing the partner. And that's why this passage is very countercultural and radical and difficult and makes people bristle. Okay, well, there's, there's three reasons why people might struggle with this. And uh, hopefully that kind of helps to set a tone. So we need to come to this part of the Bible and recognise that it's difficult for some people because it's a step backwards. It's a sensitive issue for many people for all sorts of reasons. And it's also a difficult issue for those of you who do live with difficult husbands. How to live with a Jake. Maybe that would be a good title. So here's uh, what we're going to do. I said already we're going to talk about the women's side of this this week. We could talk about the man's side of this next week. Bring all the men you know and um, I'm sure we'll have a good time and a useful time next week. Here's my little overview. I want to try and arrive at a biblical definition of how men and women should relate to each other. And this, this is relevant to all of us. If you're not a wife or you're not even a woman, I want you to learn something from the attitudes that are pervading this chapter. Uh, we said that about slaves last week. Some of you don't work, but there's things to learn because Peter's talking about the heart and attitudes. What, I want to, what I've been mulling over this week, and what I tried to put in my sermon notes until I lost them last night, there's different things that influence this. So I want to talk about three areas. I want to talk about our modern culture and how that influences our attitudes and relationships particularly the rampant individualism that we have in our culture. I want to think about the big story in the Bible and a biblical kind of slant on these issues. And then hopefully, seeing we're looking at this passage, I want to come to this passage and think about what is this specific passage saying to us about men and women issues. And hopefully we'll arrive at a good place that I've noted with a question mark there I do know where we're going but that's kind of these are the three things that are going to influence where we get to is that okay? good okay well let's think about our modern culture first of all I want to think about this idea of cultural individualism Uh, you would agree with me that our culture our modern culture in the west is very individualistic I don't think I would have to persuade you about that one of the things that I want to highlight is that the attitude, the attitudes that we are taught to cultivate as a result of that individualistic culture is that you are the most important thing. You need to fight for your rights. And if you find yourself in a situation where you're unhappy, sort it out. Because you're in charge of your life and if you're unhappy, deal with it so that you can be happy fight for it it is your entitlement and right personal choice individual rights it all sounds very plausible and very uplifting of human dignity but that kind of approach is a secular approach and not a godly approach if personal happiness is the be all and end all and you then combine that with the idea that you have to fight for your rights which includes the right to be in a happy relationship, it will affect the way that you approach your relationships. Let me give you one example that I came across. Um, Sometimes you read in the press, don't you, agony ants, and people write in because they've got some relational difficulty. And um, one lady, this is in America, she wrote in to the local agony ant, and she said this, maybe you can recognise this, 
My husband spends money like it's gone out of style. He buys anything he wants, no matter what the cost. If it's another gun for $250, fine and dandy. A third camera for $150 is okay too. He thinks nothing of paying $40 for a pair of shoes, and I won't tell you what his suits cost. His wardrobes are jammed, yet he keeps buying, buying. This man makes 20 grand a year, and he's no kid. He's 52 years old, but we're always broke. And the bills are stacked all over the place. The doctor says, that's why I have week-long headaches and high blood pressure. Do you think I can change him, or should I just give up? We've been married for five years. That's a pretty troubled marriage, isn't it? I don't think that's uncommon. And I don't think this man is particularly mature. What would you advise this woman to do? This is what the agony aunt said. Dear, you say he's no kid. Well, I have news for you. He is a kid. Forget about changing him. No way. Now that you have an opinion from your doctor, I suggest you get one from your lawyer. This I can tell you. No man is worth week-long headaches and high blood pressure. You're sincere. That's our culture. That is not uncommon advice. You talk to your friends in the workplace if you're having difficulties like this woman is and they'll say, leave him. Get rid of him. Don't just talk to your doctor. Get a solicitor involved. You've got the right to be happy. That's our cultural attitude. You don't have to put up with that. That isn't biblical advice. That is worldly advice. Peter here does not say, wives, if your husband's being harsh, divorce him. I know there are exceptions to this. We'll come on to that. And I'm not suggesting that women are, should live in an abusive relationship at all. We're talking it generally here. Peter here says, wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands. And that's hard, isn't it? attitudes that we cultivate our culture is not godly and it will tell us to do things that are alien to what God would say and we need to be very careful that we have the wisdom the discernment to tell the difference between the different kinds of advice that might come to us I want to move on and think about our individualistic culture in relation to the kind of relationships though that that gives rise to um I think our culture is very confused about equality because our culture thinks that equality means that everyone's the same. Which is pretty nonsensical, isn't it? We're not all the same. But our culture is confused about this idea of equality. There's a big word for this, and it's the word egalitarian. And here's kind of a little picture of what a relationship in our modern culture might look like. And this is an egalitarian model there is no difference between men and women apart from obvious biological ones Um, men and women are equal and they're the same they have the same roles there's no difference between the genders at all and our relationship really is two single people who are living parallel lives that are connected by some shared interests that may be hobbies it might be the fact that children have been born but we are effectively two individual people who happen to have lives that overlap Does that ring bells with you? That's how people approach 
relationships in our modern world. For some people, this will mean, why get married? We'll live together. Cohabitation is more common in our culture now than it ever has been. And just as an aside on that, I want to be clear with you, some Christians will tell you that cohabiting and being involved in a sexual relationship is, equ- is equivalent to marriage. In John chapter 4, Jesus met a woman, a foreign woman, at a well in Samaria. And uh, he broke social conventions because he cared about women and he spoke to her. I think she nearly fell off the well. Men wouldn't even speak to women. Let alone a foreign woman. Jesus says to her, will you give me a drink? What? Did you just say, will you give me a drink? And they get into a conversation. And this woman is a weary woman. And Jesus begins to engage her. And they have a very interesting conversation in John chapter 4. At one point, he says to her, go and bring your husband. And she said, I have no husband. And he says, I know. You've been married five times, was it? And the man you live with now is not your husband. They were cohabiting, but in Jesus' view, they were not married. That's just an aside. You can think about that uh, afterwards. Why, why is this? I, I remember talking to one of our designers at work a few years ago. And, um, and he said, my mum and dad went through a really nasty divorce. So did my girlfriend. We'll never get married. The fear of repeating the same mistakes meant that they wouldn't even consider marriage as an option. They were living as two single people who happened to have some shared interests. I think for some people it's not a fear of failure, it's a fear of losing individuality. This is the influence of our culture. I was speaking to one guy recently who said, I just have the vague sense that if I get married, I'll lose a piece of me. What a thing to say. I think we'll just live together. I don't want to lose a piece of me. Imagine going into a relationship like marriage or cohabiting with someone And the walls are already being built. I'm not letting you into here. I'm an individual and I don't want to lose part of my individuality. I want to say to you as well though that this is not just cohabiting. There are marriages that work on this principle. And sadly there are Christian marriages that work on this principle. We are two single people. We happen to live together. But we've got our separate lives. Separate bank accounts, separate friends, separate interests. But the glue that holds us together is the shared interest that we have that overlap. Different jobs, different spheres of activity. We'll come on to the Bible in a minute. The Bible talks about marriage being about two people becoming one flesh. This is overlapping two-ness. This isn't oneness. This is overlapping tunis, isn't it? And it's the culture, individualistic culture. Some people might say the marriages I know are not very happy. It's only a piece of paper anyway. Actually, we're better than some couples who are married that we know. And maybe that's true. 
But I want to say to you what happens when the glue, what happens when this bit becomes unstuck? What happens when shared interests change? What happens even in a Christian marriage when the kids grow up and leave home if that's been the only glue that's been holding a couple together? Why is it that men have midlife crises? Why is it that women, when the children leave home, struggle to find their identity because they don't know what to do now? Separate, single lives with shared interests. When they change, the marriage is in trouble because it's not oneness, it's overlapping two-ness. And you'll know people you're going through or have been through exactly that kind of issue. So there's one model of relationships that's predicated on our individualistic culture and that's been an influence as I'm thinking about this whole passage we need to kind of give the, the backdrop to why uh, our culture is like it is, don't we? The second thing I said we would look at is the big story of the Bible <coughs> and here's a different model uh, rather than call this one egalitarian let's call this complementarian <coughs> this is not that men and women are the same they are equal, yes but in God's design they have different roles and this is maybe a better, a better model. <coughs> maybe a better model? Of course it's a better model. <coughs> Excuse me. The first thing I want you to notice here, men and women, is that man is not king. Man is not the ultimate authority. He thinks he is, but he isn't. God is. That job is already filled by a great candidate who will not abdicate or go on holiday and allow man to usurp his authority. God is the ultimate authority. We've seen that all the way through this chapter. But the issue here, and I think this diagram shows it, is of oneness, isn't it? It's the oneness of men and women living to please God and fulfil their different roles in harmony and for their children to obey them. That, that's something else that's kind of, we're not, we're not even talking about children, but that's sort of side. This is God's ideal. And where do we get this idea of oneness from? Well, we get it from the Bible, don't we? And this is not a law that God gave to Moses. This isn't something that just appears in the New Testament suddenly. This goes right back to the very beginning and is founded on creation itself. Here's a verse from Genesis chapter 2 <coughs> where God um, really sets up the first wedding. Well, what a thing that is as well. The, the first wedding, there's no one there as a witness. Adam and Eve are there. Well, Adam's there. And God gives away the bride. God brings the bride to Adam and says, There you go, mate. His jaw must have been on the floor. He'd never seen a woman before, let alone a perfect woman. Wow! His jaw must have kind of dropped, and God brings them together and joins them together. It's one of the reasons why a marriage service, from a church perspective, is like it is. 
it's, marriage is God's idea and uh, God, God had said in that chapter it says it's not good for the man to be alone and, it, and God describes the woman as a helper or helpmeet that isn't a derogatory term at all in the Psalms God is described as our helper this is a complementary relationship equal human beings in the sight of God but with different roles and at this point in the beginning their vertical relationship with God is harmonious they trust him and follow him and love him and he cares for them and protects them and guides them provides for them and their horizontal relationship with one another is built on the same kind of trust there's no shame or guilt or evil yet so even before sin comes into the world God invented marriage there's no factories there's no hospitals there's no schools there's no other social structures apart from one, one man and one woman there in the garden joined together by God it's a serious thing but it didn't stay that way did it and I, I think this is where <coughs> it gets interesting for us maybe, maybe we just need to go back to Genesis if we can because I'm going to refer to some of the things that happen here in Genesis the first thing I want you to know or I want you to see even though we're talking to, to women and wives is that Adam from God's perspective is responsible and let me show you that here uh, in Genesis when you read the story of what happened when the serpent comes into the Garden of Eden I think we can imagine that Eve's there on her own and Adam's kind of chopping wood somewhere and he comes back and thinks what have you done but that isn't the way the chapter reads because it says that Eve in verse 6 saw the fruit it's good for food pleasing to her desirable for gain wisdom she took some and ate it she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it I can't tell you how foundational that verse is in relation to what we're talking about here. Adam was a coward. He stood there next to Eve in the Garden of Eden and she's parleying with the devil and Adam stands there like a nonce and says nothing. What is that about? What is that about? Do you care for your wife, Adam? Have you got anything to say to protect your wife's honour, dignity, purity? No. I'm just going to stand by with my hands. And, well, he didn't have pockets, did he? But I'm going to stand there and just let my wife be deceived. What a coward. I want you to notice also what God says when God then comes later into the garden. In verse 9. Who did the Lord God call to? Eve, took, Eve was deceived. She took the fruit. But who did God want to do business with? Where are you? He called to the man. Adam, where are you? What a question that is to ring down the years of history. Man, where are you? God would say. 
Listen, imagine there's an issue in your home. I'm, I'm, I don't want to get into next week. But imagine there's an issue in your home. And God calls at the house and knocks on the door. And the wife answers the door. Hello, Lord. Shall I tell you what God would say? He would say, is the man of the house at home? Can you go and get him please? I want to talk to him. He's responsible. It's very clear that Adam abdicated his responsibility. And God wanted to speak to him. Where are you, Adam? We'll come back to it next week. But for now, just notice the created order. God creates men and women equal but different and he expects men to step up and be counted. And when they don't, it causes problems and God wants to know why. We'll talk about that more next week. The second thing I want you to notice here, very quickly, is that for the first time, insecurity enters God's good world. There's a big change here. And I, we're not going to, you know the story, we're not going to recap the whole story of a particular focus on the man-woman issues that are going on. Just look with me, uh, first of all, at the last verse of chapter 2. The writer tells us that the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. Just look now at verse 7 of chapter 3. The moments after they took the fruit together, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realised that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. That is very profound. That's not just about clothes and nakedness. This is about shame. That something has come into the world that has destroyed intimacy and broken trust. And before they had no boundaries but now it's not safe to live like that just imagine Adam looking across at his wife and thinking I don't know if I can give you my heart now after what you've done can I really trust you not to break it and then like a stab it dawns on him that he's done the same (laughs) can I trust myself to hold your heart and not break it suddenly there's insecurity in God's good word shame, guilt, fear what is this person going to do to me or not do for me it's very very profound and this is the beginning of blame culture isn't it God says to Adam where are you I heard you in the garden, verse 10, I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from a tree? The man said, it's the woman's fault. Someone said, when God spoke to Adam, he blamed Eve. When God spoke to Eve, she blamed the serpent, and the serpent didn't have a leg to stand on. Have you heard that one? Of course you have. <coughs> the blame culture wasn't me, Gov. And what a thing for Adam to say to God. That amazing woman that you gave me, she wasn't all she was cracked up to me. You could have, can I trade her in for a better model? She's big time, let me down, it's her fault. So weak, honestly. Blame culture. 
And uh, this is the way the human race has been. The third thing I want you to notice very quickly is the curse. This is very important as well. I don't think we always notice this. God speaks then in reverse order to the serpent. And then over the page in our church Bibles here, he speaks to Eve. And then he speaks to Adam. I think we all remember what he says to Adam. You're going to have a nightmare at work, mate. (laughs) From now on, the ground is going to be full of thistles and you're going to sweat, toil. And we all kind of appreciate that's a bad curse. But in the same context, God said something to Eve before that, which is not said in jest or in happiness, but as part of the curse. And uh, there in verse 16, God says to Eve, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. But it's the last bit that I just want to focus your minds on. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. That is a very difficult verse and it's not a great translation here in the NIV. But just as you think about that, God cannot mean physical desire here because they've already known that in their innocence before the fall. So there is a sense in which that verse, as it stands, doesn't really make sense, does it? Your desire will be for your husband. And what's bad about that? That's a good thing. So it's not a great translation, that. The clue to this is in the next chapter. I'm just looking for it here. Um, It is in chapter 4 and verse 7. When God gives a warning to Cain, which he doesn't heed and he goes out and murders his brother, but the same word is used in this warning. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. It's the same word. It desires to have you. But you must master it, Cain. He didn't. So that verse 16, chapter 3, that verse really is saying, Eve, your desire will be to control your husband. Your desire will be to manipulate him, to scheme with him, to usurp his authority. Your desire will be to treat him like a puppet on a string. Does that ring any bells? Men like to think they're in charge, but you know that's just the wisdom of women letting them think they're in charge. That's the way our culture talks, isn't it? Women, this is part of the case, women will seek to control and manipulate their husbands. And their husbands will seek to dominate them. This is very important, and I've lingered over it. This is the beginning of gender war. Women who are now insecure and fearful and wonder how will my needs now be met I'm going to have to control and manipulate and scheme and flatter and boss about and control because I'm anxious and frightened and men we'll talk about it next week will either abdicate or abuse unless they're godly men they will give in to either cowardice or chauvinism they will either do too little or they will do too much and go too far how hard it is to live in this world in the light of that case 
This is sin coming into the world. This describes a human race. Does it not describe culture and society perfectly? Women manipulating men, either disappearing to keep the peace or doing too much and becoming abusive. How relevant and true and accurate the Bible is. And there's the Bible big story for you. And I think we've got to look at that before we come back to 1 Peter. This was there in the created order, oneness, one flesh, not two single people living overlapping lives, but oneness, not separated two-ness. And that was there before the fall, but when the fall comes in, relationships between men and women are in trouble because women will be prone to manipulate and men will be prone to either be cowards or chauvinists. And for the last few thousand years, we've seen that play out in human history. And you can think, maybe, of relationships that have been in trouble. And you can ask yourself, which, how, how is that kind of playing out? Because it will be one of those things, more than likely. Okay, we need to rattle on. <coughs> Thirdly, we said we would finally get to 1 Peter chapter 3. <coughs> which is quite important. Seeing that's what we're looking at at the moment. So what about the specifics here? Um, I think um, it's just worth highlighting the culture that Peter's writing into, not to dilute what Peter says, but to emphasise it. Uh, Many people say that the Bible is anti-women. And um, the truth is, actually, that the Bible is not at all anti-women, but many ancient cultures were very anti-women, And the Bible speaks into those cultures very radically to protect women. In the time that this is written, you've got three cultures really. Jewish, Roman and Greek cultures. And this is what one writer says. In every sphere of these ancient civilizations, women had no rights at all. Under Jewish law, a woman was a thing. She was owned by her husband in exactly the same way as he owned his sheep and goats. On no account could she leave him, although he could dismiss her at any moment. And for a wife to change her religion, while her husband didn't, was unthinkable. Imagine that. In Greek civilization, he says, the duty of the woman was to remain indoors and to be obedient to her husband. It was the sign of a good woman that she must see as little, hear as little, and ask as little as possible... She had no kind of independent existence and no kind of mind of her own and her husband could divorce her almost at caprice so long as he retained her dowry. Under Roman law, a woman had no rights. This is interesting. In law, she remained forever a child. When she was under her father, she was under the patria potestas, patria potestas, the father's power, which gave the father the right even of life and death over her. And when she married, she just passed equally into the power of her husband. She was entirely subject to her husband and completely at his mercy. Peter is writing into that culture and he says, Wives, submit to your husbands. Wow. Just imagine with me for a minute a woman in that culture who is converted to Christ. And your husband thinks, you silly woman, what have you done? 
you can stay indoors and don't talk to anyone <laughs> in, that, in this kind of harsh brutal culture where a woman is not even thought to be able to think for herself and she says to her husband I'm following Jesus now what? and yet Peter says submit he he begins this verse by saying wives in the same way what do you think that means in the same way well he's thinking surely about the rest of the passage in the same way as I'm urging good Christian citizens to submit to Nero in the same way that I'm encouraging Christian slaves to submit to masters who daily pummel them and more than that if you take the end of chapter 2 in the same way that Jesus himself suffered injustice at the hands of wicked man you are to submit to your husbands I think the main point here again is that the character of the other party involved is not the thing that should shape your attitude what should shape your attitude as a Christian woman in this case wife is what God intends you to be if marriages are to work as God intended them then each party needs to focus on fulfilling their part even when the other party is failing to fulfil theirs There is no guarantee here that if a wife does this, the unbelieving husband will be saved. This is not a cast iron 100% promise. But what Peter is saying is, this is the only way for that to happen. If you don't submit to your husband, you'll never win him. You get that? You might not, but if you don't do this, you never will. That's the issue at stake. Imagine what the husband would think when there are pastoral issues and the wife wants to speak to a church leader and the husband feels undermined. Why don't you talk to me? It's hard, isn't it? Delicate, difficult. Well, let's unpick this, uh, these six verses in the, in the little bit of time we've got left. And uh, hopefully we'll learn some good things. I want to make three points but I want to just introduce this by making a general point so we'll come on to the three points in a minute I just want to say in passing because it's here in the Bible about Christian wives and non-Christian unbelieving husbands I just want you to, to understand that this does not condone a Christian marrying a non-Christian Peter isn't giving his approval to that kind of situation. Um, I think there's a number of ways that this situation could arise. You could have two unbelievers who get married and then the wife becomes a Christian. Peter says, and Paul agrees, uh, that the woman or the man should stay with the unbelieving partner becoming a Christian isn't a reason to leave if the other partner is happy for the relationship to continue 
I suppose it's possible that you might have two people who get married as Christians and one of them then seems to backslide, give up their faith and uh, it becomes clear that maybe they've never been a Christian to start with. That's very difficult, isn't it? To go into a marriage and then realise that all's not well. And then I suppose the third situation is that a Christian lady could marry a non-Christian man and I want to say that this doesn't condone that that would be sinful and wrong according to the Bible and I want to just say this about that point, we do live in a messy world though I think people do live together before they get married, sometimes children are born and uh, I suppose maybe I can say this, we're not being here I'm thinking about Charlotte and Sean recently I've spent a lot of time with Charlotte and Sean doing marriage preparation classes for them and with them and uh, I don't think it would be right for example to encourage Charlotte as a Christian woman to leave the man she's living with because he's not a Christian that's messy isn't it but I don't think you can compound the problem by making it worse the right thing for them to do is to do what they have done which is to get married and, uh, so, but I don't think that extreme example is a, a way of the Bible condoning that being the case uh, for someone who's not in that situation. Three issues then that affect all of us as human beings but are very relevant to women. I want to talk about speech, appearance and anxiety. They're the three things. We're going to close with this and hopefully this is helpful. So, the first point is this. The way you live is more important than what you say. Peter is speaking here to a Christian wife, at least at first. And uh, look at what he says there. Wives, in the same way, be submissive to your husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word. So this is a husband who understands the word, He has heard the gospel, maybe from his wife, maybe from other people in the church, maybe from Christian friends. And for now, he's decided, I don't want any more of this. I will not believe it. This is not for me. It's possible that he's happy for his wife to go along with that. It may be possible that he's been very harsh with his wife and and brutal because he doesn't want her to believe either. But this is a case where the husband knows the word but does not believe the word of God. Now I don't want you to misunderstand this. He's not saying that talking about the gospel at home is wrong. And he's not saying that people can become Christians without knowing the word of God. As though it's some kind of mysterious black magic thing. That if people say how we live and they'll suddenly become a Christian. People need to know the word of God if they're going to trust Christ. He's talking here of husbands who have heard enough and decided that they want no more. He may feel undermined, threatened. I've seen this several times where a wife becomes a Christian and she goes for her husband's jugular like there's no tomorrow. And the husband is like, what just hit me? What on earth is going on? What has my wife got? She's gone bananas. 
and he's had enough she criticizes what he wears what he does how he speaks she longs for him to become a Christian but she goes about it in the wrong way and I've, I've seen marriages that have nearly ended because of that reality this goes back to the curse in the Garden of Eden women will tend to want to control to a greater or lesser degree when a woman becomes a Christian that doesn't disappear all of a sudden she now wants to do everything she can to encourage her husband to be something but the language she uses is so important if the husband feels you want me to be something that means you don't like what I am that means you can't love me for what I am and all the tension that that brings and a husband withdraws and it's horrible Peter here is so up to date isn't he he's, he's canny in his advice Peace submissive so that if any of them do not believe the word they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives some women will put bible text in his sandwiches when he goes to work and he opens his cheese sandwich and it's like trust the Lord your God and he's fridge magnets and you know open the fridge and there's a little bible next to his bottle of beer in the fridge you know women have a tendency to nag they do in the book of Proverbs it says that a woman can be like a dripping tap can be it's not a sweeping generalisation about all women and there's two things that will happen when a woman nags a man he will either give in to keep the peace and be resentful inside and that's not what it means to become a Christian for sure or he will react and resist and become abusive and so women who become Christians and their husbands are not need to learn something about how to handle their husbands and what Peter's saying is I want you to just be the best wife you can be that's what you need to focus on don't be trying to nag him to death if, he if he's asking questions that's fine but don't nag him to death trying to come at it from different angles and don't flatter him and patronise him and argue with him just be a good wife and win him by being what your side of the bargain should be when you submit to him and honour him and respect him and follow him even if he's a poor and a difficult husband when you do that he'll think hang on a minute what's going on here he may do and your behaviour will win him over One writer says this, it's not wrong for the believing wife to share the gospel with her unbelieving husband but there comes a time when communication stops and it becomes nagging. And the husband will see it as a subtle attempt to overthrow his leadership, a way of subtly insinuating her will into the direction of the home. She may not stamp her foot but by continually, repeatedly bringing up the same issues over and over again by correcting the way he dresses, acts, talks, eats, thinks and by continually bringing up the gospel, she will alienate him, even though she's trying to win him. Her goal is right, but her method is wrong. Peter's advice would be, if your husband doesn't want to know, let it drop. Let it go. And be the best wife you can be. How you act is far more important than what you say. It's worth saying as well, just very quickly, don't forget as well that this is between God and your husband. 
And you can't nag him into the kingdom. You can't flatter him into the kingdom. You can't patronise him into the kingdom. This is between him and God. And this is where women struggle because you can't control and manipulate that, can you? You can't kind of, even though you want it with all your heart, you can't make it happen by human means. It's God's way. You need to pray for him and live with him and be a good wife. And maybe, maybe, he'll be one as you do your best to please him. Well, we need to crack on, don't we? Let me give you another one. What you are inside is more, I can't remember what I put, is more important than what you are on the outside. There we are. Inner beauty is more important than outward beauty. It doesn't mean outward beauty is wrong. It is not a sin to be beautiful. Women look nice, smell nice. They are nice. Nothing wrong with that. But some women are obsessive in an unhealthy way about their appearance. And it's not enough. Physical beauty will fade. And what is crucial is inner beauty. It's interesting when you read magazines. I don't read a lot of women's magazines. I'm not sure if I read any actually. But you'll never, women's magazines are all about how you look. But they never encourage good character, do they? Imagine on the shelf there in the newsagent's magazine and the headline on the front is How to be a humble wife. You know, there's nothing about character. In our culture we're encouraged to look good but not how to live better. Peter says here that uh, your beauty should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Gentleness is what we thought about last year. Meekness. Power under control. Do you remember that? Power under control. And quietness. (coughs) What Peter's urging here is wisdom. Appropriate, prudent behaviour, careful language, not combative, argumentative, controlling and manipulative. Our culture urges women to be aggressive and immodest. Peter here is arguing the opposite. Quietness and gentleness, and he's not talking about personality either. It is possible to be a loud and gregarious, even boisterous woman, and yet be submissive to your husband. And it's equally possible to seem to be a quiet and thoughtful woman and yet be brooding and unsubmissive. So this is not about personality. It's about inward attitude, isn't it? Gentle and a quiet spirit. Well, we could say a lot more about that, but we've got a few more things to say. I want to touch on this anxiety. This is a problem for all of us. I think this is a particular issue for women. Faith is more important than fear. This is important for women in general as well. (coughs) Peter goes on to take, to encourage his readers to think about examples of godly women. And he describes them as women, in verse 5, this is the way holy women of the past 
who put their hope in God used to make themselves beautiful. Faith in God is the antidote to anxiety and fear. And Peter says at the end of verse 6, You are Sarah's daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. The way to do what is right is to put your hope and faith in God and that will liberate you to be free from anxiety and fear and to be calm and to have a quiet and gentle spirit and to be able to work and live with a husband who is perhaps difficult to live with. Why? Because your hope is in God and not in him. That's the contrast. Faith is better than fear. Very quickly here, the example of Sarah, I think, is a beautiful choice and there are other preachers better than me who have helped me to see this. <coughs> when you stop and think about it, if you were thinking about a lady in the Old Testament that you would choose as an example of a submissive woman, would you pick Sarah? Would you? Would you even go anywhere near Abraham? This is the father of the Jewish nation, Abraham. Sarah was not perfect. And this is an encouragement to us because it's grace. Sarah was not perfect and I was Abraham. She gave bad advice to her husband. They couldn't have children so she said, Hey Abraham, why don't you sleep with my servant? Okay. What's that all about? That's far from being a good oneness, isn't it? She followed Abraham when she shouldn't have. She didn't follow him when she should have. <laughs> Abraham tried to pimp her out and lied about whether you know she's not my wife she's my sister really which was half true she was his half sister and get this when God came in the form of an angel to Abraham's tent Sarah's next door they're quite thin tents aren't they and the, and the angel God himself says to Abraham come back this year next year and you're going to be with child what does Sarah do? she laughs she laughs in God's face kind of well on her own but she laughs at God and how relevant this is to us. Some of you women may be sitting there this morning thinking, this sounds great, this saying, pull the other one. Pull the other one. This, is this God's word? I, I, I'm not going to do this because it doesn't work. Sarah was a woman like that. She heard God and she laughed at God's word. And Peter picks her as the example of the submissive woman. And why? There is hope here, isn't there? Grace. He picks a woman who's been through all that you've been through and a man who's been through all that us men have been through and he commends her they did make it. Why? Not because they were perfect but because they trusted God. That's the thing that makes the difference. They were not perfect. They trusted God and they made progress and their issues began to be unravelled and sorted and ultimately they were on a journey with God. Let's hope the issue here is fear, the temptation to think that if I follow God's ways, I'll be miserable. But the issue comes down to faith. Do I trust God to follow his wisdom, put my hope in him? Can I give him my anxieties and trust him to handle and meet all my needs? Can I find my identity and comfort and security in God? Can I lose the controlling obsession 
with appearance, the anxiety, and put myself safely in God's hands. There's another woman in the Bible who demonstrates this very movingly. You'll know this story as well. Jacob, we were talking about this in our growth group on Thursday. Jacob loved Rachel. And Jacob was a twister. And his uncle Laban was a twister. He said, you can have Rachel if you work seven years. And he worked for seven years. Imagine that. All the time. Beautiful girl. He's got to work for seven years. And on the wedding night... Jacob gives him Leah, the ugly one. And Leah knows he doesn't love me. But it says in Genesis 29 that the Lord opened her womb. And she conceived and gave birth to a child. And the names that they gave to the child were significant of how they were feeling. The first child, she says, the Lord, I'm doing this from memory, the Lord has seen me. Perhaps now my husband will love me because I've given him a child. But he didn't. He loved Rachel to the end of his days. She has a second child. She says, perhaps now the Lord has heard me and my husband will love me because I've given him another child. But he didn't. She has a third child. And then she says, perhaps now my husband will be attached to me because I've given him another child. But he wasn't. And by the time the fourth child is born, her whole attitude has changed and she calls him Judah and says, now I will praise the Lord. She's been trying to win her husband's affection by having kids, by being a good wife and he loves Rachel. Eventually she realises I'm not going to have my needs met by this man. I need to praise the Lord and put my hope in him. That was her rest and peace in a difficult home. She lived with a jerk. And the antidote to anxiety and needs not being met was her faith in her Heavenly Father. Very moving. Read it when you get home, Genesis 29. I just want to we're done really I just want to close by just saying a few quick things they're they're my main three points I don't want you to misunderstand anything I've said here and here's just a quick few bullet points wives are not meant to be silent sycophantic stupid or slaves that isn't what this passage is teaching you know that don't you it is not wrong for a wife to communicate with her husband we're not talking here about wives being quiet as a mouse Wives are not meant to be sycophantic. That is, agree with everything your husband says and not try to influence him. We talked about this with bosses last week, didn't we? It's not wrong for employees to you know, question their bosses. The issue is the spirit that it's done in, isn't it? This is not about intelligence. Some wives are cleverer than their husbands. Some wives are quicker at making decisions than their husbands. But again, it's not about that. It's about attitude, heart wives are not slaves who are meant to obey everything their husband says particularly if they're asking them to sin and wives are not meant to be punchbacks and remain in an abusive relationship we've talked about authority if that's true appeal to a higher authority 
This passage is not suggesting that women should suffer in silence abuse. Call the police. Call a pastor. Appeal to a higher authority. This passage is not teaching that. It's teaching that husbands and wives are equal but complementary. Husbands should lead like Jesus leads. We'll come to that next week. And wives should be submissive like Jesus is submissive. Wives are to live so that their husbands are the best they can be. So don't give in to fear, but trust the Lord. And submit in your situation for the Lord's sake and for his glory. That theme has run through the whole chapter, hasn't it? For his sake and for the sake of the gospel, play your part. Trust in God and don't give in to fear.